Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Eunice Jaidi. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Before we get going and I introduce our guests really quickly, I'm just going to point out uh, a couple of things. One is, is that things have really kind of slowed down sponsorship-wise for devchat.tv. And so, yeah, so if you want to support us, if you go to devchat.tv slash support, there's going to be a link in there where you can go just give us like five bucks. It allows you to do it on a recurring basis too, which would really help. But yeah, it'll allow us to keep doing the shows that you love. So anyway, yeah, devchat.tv slash support. We have a special guest this week, and that is Christian Leidemann. Hello, how's it going? It's going all right. I said your name right, right? You were on the Freelancer Show. And- uh, almost uh, Ludemann. Ludemann. German last names, I know. I know, right? I need to practice my German, which means learn it. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> do you want to uh, give us a brief introduction, who you are, why you're important, all that stuff? Yeah, sure. So my name is Christian and I work as an Angular consultant where I help companies create Angular apps and train them at the same time to do it efficiently. And actually the topic of today is the 10 commandments of Angular development. And that is 10 principles I have extracted from teaching companies to be efficient with Angular development. And these 10 principles have proven to really make a big difference for teams once they get these internalized. And it really makes them more aligned in the same direction of where they're going. And it's a pretty good jumpstart, especially when you come from another background like backend development and are fairly new to Angular development. This is normally what makes it click pretty fast. So pretty excited about that. Nice. So yeah, I guess I guess the outcome is yeah, you want something that's easy to maintain, something that's performant, things like that. Anything you want to add, Eunice, before we just jump in and talk about the the Ten Commandments, the ten things that you should be doing? I have plenty of questions, but I think I'm gonna keep them for every topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And before I really dive in, these are principles and of course there are exceptions to each principle. And we will also talk upon touch upon that, what they can right. be. So the first principle is about separating your components into smart and dumb components. And the benefit you're going to get from that is that you are going to get more reuse of your components when you separate them that way. Not only are you getting segregation of responsibility in that sense, but you have smart components that are responsible for injecting the services and have the context awareness and pretty much is ones that could, for example, be a page that's normally a top-level page that will be the smart component. And then that page is going to consist of UI components, that is the DOM components, which is going to contain some UI building block. And DOM components should only interact with the surrounding components using inputs and outputs. And by doing that, it's going to be more reusable in that sense that you can actually move the component around. And then as you develop your Angular app, you're going to have more and more of these dumb components, which is actually going to be the building blocks for a UI library, as you can later extract them 
to a UI library and you're going to have more and more building blocks as you as you develop more and more of your Angular app. So that actually makes you go faster because you're going to have all these tools as you go on. Yeah, what's basically about is that you just had this split here where as you create a new page, you, you're going to be aware that the, the page component, the the top level component on that page is going to be the smart component and that's going to inject services and also facades. We're going to talk about that in a bit and that's going to contain the, the UI part. So that's going to be the whole wrapper for, for, wrapper for the whole, whole page, really. By the way, do you have any recommendations concerning the project structure and how you separate smarts and dumb components in them? Yeah, my recommended way of doing it is to create a monorepo. It depends how big the app is and how big the intended architecture of the app is. But for example, right now I'm working with a client where it's building a huge bank, online bank. For them, that's going to scale to an anonymous size eventually. For them, it's a really good pick to go with a monorepo approach because it's going to ease the code sharing, you know, using stuff like NX. So ease code sharing. And then as you develop more and more UI components, you can then extract them to a UI library inside of the one of the NX uh, libraries. So it's going to be this very, very dynamic build of the, of the architecture where you don't need to plan it out when you start the project. You can just do it as you go along. You, you start seeing the commonalities. You start to see that you might start to duplicate some UI components, and then you just extract them to the UI library as you build your app. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I never thought of the the collection of the dumb com- the dumb components as sort of your UI setup. How, how do you keep track of all that though? Because I I would assume that you know between all the buttons and images and things that you're pulling in, that it might you know, it might become overwhelming. Okay, we have this kind of input and that kind of input and the other kind of input. And, you know, we have an H1 for this and an H1 for the other. You know, how, how do you keep track of when and how to use all that stuff? Normally, in a, in a setup, there's normally some kind of technical coordination between the different feature teams. So they can propose stuff to be, be shared and go to the UI library. How often how a setup is, is that you you have some application for for example be an an online banking application and then that might be using some ui library which might be external from the banking application you might decide at some point that you have some shared ui stuff that you want to move to the ui library eventually because you find it being used by multiple places but yeah the short answer is just you you have these coordination events between different the different tech leads from the different feature teams, for example. I also heard some companies, they, they have a Slack channel for that stuff, uh, a Slack channel where they can propose presentation components to be shared. So, so there's different ways, but yeah, you find some, some lightweight form of communication about it where you can easily just communicate and propose stuff that, that should, uh, should go to the shared place. Would you would you create would you recommend creating like a another set of components like between like the smart components and dumb components like to have the routed components separated and say okay these are page components which are related to a route so this is a high level component and then we have smart components then we have dumb components underneath or would you just mix the routed components and smart components as smart components do you mean like have an intermediate component a smart component 
for yeah. for 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 minimizing nesting uh, and propagating back and forth of inputs and outputs. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that will make sense if it's a lot of levels of uh, input and output propagation. Like if it's ten levels of of dump components down, that's pretty tedious to go up and down. So normally, what I would do there, I would find somewhere in between where I will then add another smart component in between, and it's breaking the rules a little bit, but the benefits are worth it, I would say, because then you don't need to. Then you might, you might worst case, need to pipe three or four levels up and down, as contrary to ten levels. That would be that would be ridiculous, ridiculous to go uh, ten levels uh, up and down with inputs and outputs every time there's a change. So that's that's the exception of this rule that sometimes you will you will put something in between to just make it simpler. The next one is about abstractions. And abstractions is a thing that we've been using for decades in software development. But for some reason in Angular apps, it's it's a kind of new thing and a lot of companies are not doing it. And that's pretty crazy when you think about the complexity and the business logic where that lies these days. I would say that a lot of front-end apps, they are at least as complex as back-end application these days. And the backends has they've been using layered architecture, onion architecture, abstractions as a general practice and as a best practice for a long time. For some reason, it just hadn't really had the same, it hadn't been used as much in the front-end, which I think is a shame because what has been working on the back-end will also work on the front-end when you find the right mapping of how it's applied in the front-end. How I like to use abstractions in Angular apps is that, first of all, for example, with UI components, I like to have them wrap, for example, wrap a UI library like Bootstrap instead of hard coupling everything to one specific UI framework. And that's, that's the idea that you don't want to be married to one specific vendor when, you, when you're developing your application because how are you going to change later when you are hard coupling to that? And also when you need to change something in a lot of places, you will need to update all the usages instead of just you know, update everything behind the abstraction. So that's one of the benefits behind an abstraction, how you can use it for UI components to wrap something like Angular Material and a Bootstrap or whatever you like in your UI library. So, so you're not really deciding if you want to use Angular Material for life. You are, you're creating some wrapper components outside that are wrapping it. And then if you want to change it later, you want to apply some extra styling that decorates it later, you can just do that because it, you're not completely hard coupled to that. Another way of doing abstractions is to abstract, for example, HTTP calls and web sockets and state management. I know from that there's been some talk about NGX facades, for example, on one of the other episodes here. And there's there's some mixed uh, opinions if you should use NGX facades or not. I like to use it. I think from if you see how facades has been providing value in the backend for the last couple of decades, I think it makes a lot of sense to use NGX uh, facades because sometimes you're going to change the state management framework. And for example, a couple of hours ago today, I had a coaching call with a client that asked me which state management framework they should use because they think NGIX that might be overkill. And I 
admitted it, it might be overkill for them because they had kind of like a small application, not many pages. Then they asked me what to do. And then I told them they could just start creating a facade and then starting using IXJS behavior subjects to begin with. And then later they can just change the implementation to something like Akita or whatever, IXJS, IXXS, whatever uh, front end, uh, whatever state management framework they like later because they have the extraction in place. So that's the beauty about that. You can actually change it later without needing to update the usages and you have a nice interface that doesn't reflect technology, but reflect domain knowledge instead. That's what we know from domain-driven design, that we want it to be about the domain. We want, we want some, someone who is able to only develop the UI layer to not be confused when actually retrieving data and updating data, because you can just use a facade. Facade use, reflects the use cases in normal English. So he will just be able to use that facade. And then maybe some other Angular guy that is a little more savvy with GIX, he can do that, reduce us and, and, and create the store and all that without the, the UI developer needing to, to know all that. So that's one of the beauty with abstractions. Also, testing becomes easier when you don't need to mug out the store. There's a lot of benefits with it, especially as it scales, because who knows in one or two or three years when you invest thousands and thousands of hours building features with NGIX, for example, if you might need to change it later or something like that, then the, at scale, the abstraction is really going to pay for itself. To begin with, some think that it can be a little tedious. I think it can kind of limit the framework they're using a little bit. I hear that sometimes that they, they, they feel that it's kind of tedious to then pass data in to NGIX and they might be acting a little command-like instead of event um, publishing with NGIX because, because of the, the facade. But really, you can do, of course, you can do everything regardless if you have a facade or not. It just provides this level of, of abstraction where you're only working with either observables or just pure, pure TypeScript facade in normal domain language. But I still see some, some companies, maybe for small projects, they, they, they can't couple the UI with Angular material because they think it's a little easier to do than, than creating these wrapper components. And it's, I would say it's, it's at own risk. It depends on how, how much you want to customize it. Because if you want to customize it, you want to be able to change your, your UI components fast without going and needing to update all the usages in a big application and maybe across many clients, then you will need some kind of encapsulation, some kind of wrapping around the components. That's very interesting. But when would you say people should start creating abstractions? Because I think that sometimes people should wait a little bit before setting up abstractions. For example, I met like these kind of projects where you have like they're using like some UI library and they are like, okay, we need some abstraction because we're going to need this later, but it's too early because they only have one use case. And abstraction is really tricky, I guess, because for, for like people who work with Angular all the time, like you end up like knowing and on multiple projects, it's quite easy like to find the right abstractions. But for someone who's working only on one project and who is new to Angular, using abstractions, adding abstractions can be very dangerous. So this happens once in a project I've met. They created like this so complex abstraction on just like a flex box thing. And so 
I would recommend maybe like, I don't know, there's something, there's some point where maybe people are not ready or maybe the project's not ready for abstractions yet. So it's tricky. Abstraction is not that easy, I guess. But I don't know. What, what would you say? What would be the rules from which point you start setting up abstractions? It depends how how big you want. You think the app is going to scale because if if you know it's always going to be a small app, then then you don't need to worry about much because mm. a lot of these principles are going to give scalability. And a small scale, everything will work. Everything is easy when you update stuff. Even if you hard code everything, if you, if you do magic strings all over the place, you can you can manage it. Still, you can break all the rules and it will still work. So if, if you know it's gonna eventually going to scale, then I would add uh, abstractions fairly early, actually. And also, one, one common use case is sometimes on a new project, the UI guidelines and UI library, they are being developed in parallel with the application feature development. And the only, the easiest way to make that work is that we have some way of encapsulating the different components so, for example, when the when the UX uh, UX team they say now a date picker should look like this, then if you don't have some way to abstract this and it might be used a hundred places, it's going to be a huge change and a very risky change and a lot of QA manual QA work to make sure it still still works. If you were to maybe just rely on Bootstrap and global styling to do the, the, that change. That would be way harder to change. Whereas if you have encapsulation, it's less risky. If you can wrap it inside of a, a UI component, it's less risky to do. And it'll be easier to encapsulate everything related to that styling in one place. So of course, you can do something like mixing, as you normally see with, with Angular material projects that are not using abstractions, but... And then I've seen where if, if you parallel are developing the UI library, I would definitely prefer to have it in encapsulated uh, UI components. Yeah, one other thing I'm just going to say in relation to what Eunice pointed out is, yeah, you know, it's easy to get the wrong abstraction, but in some cases it's easier to change the abstraction you have than to just create a new one. The other thing is, is that I find that if you wait, later often means never. And so if you leave something till later, till you have to make the decision, a lot of times you wind up you know, wishing you had made it sooner. And in a lot of cases, wind up having that technical debt floating out there forever until you get to the place where it's like, okay, we're spending more maintenance hours fixing the old way than fixing the abstraction. And then yeah, you get all the stuff that Christian pointed out because you have the risks and everything else to go with it. Yeah, especially in a corporate setup with politics and budgets where it's... Normally, budgets, they are people pay for features, then they're not going to pay for abstractions. So it's, it's going to be way more natural for the decision maker if you factor in these abstractions as part of a feature instead of this separate thing you need to have signed off by a decision maker. Oh, now we want to have abstractions because it's going to make us go faster later. I have a need to argue for that case. Uh, it's going to be quite hard for a non-technical a decision maker to to throw money after that and and defend that decision to his boss and so on. The main thing I was like pointing here is the skills required to get the right abstractions, especially on the component side, like using projection, template outlets, and stuff like this, which is not like the the features that are the 
most known in Angular or mastered in Angular, while they are very required, like for for really required for abstraction. So that what would be then like the prerequisites you would recommend, like things to check out, things to learn, to find the right abstractions. And on the other side, what would be like the development workflow, like, for example, I usually recommend like TDD and stuff like this to have like the right abstractions because you have the interface from your usage and not from the mm. implementation. So you don't have like the implementation popping up in your face because that the abstraction didn't really do anything. It's just like returning the same types and stuff like this. So what would be like two or three prerequisites that you would recommend to or the people who are listening to learn to get the right abstractions? Mm. Yeah, first of all, with the use cases in mind, like when we talked about facades, that's going to make it make it more intentful and definitely going to make you cut out the fat. You're not going to add something that's not going to be part of some use case. So, so that's the first step. And also you're going to make sure the naming is aligning with use cases and not some technical lingo. And um, the other part, I would say to actually learn the technical part of how to create great UI libraries, go check out Ionic, go check out Angular Materials GitHub project. and Let's say you want to create a date picker. Find inspiration from how they did it. Did they use template ref? Did they use some kind of projection? How did they do that? And just find inspiration from have these go-to projects. I learned a lot by looking at Ionic and, and Angular Material and, and Bootstrap and stuff like that to, to just find inspiration how they do stuff and make it good for your use case. All right, let's jump to the next one. Yeah. So the next say. one is about following the official guidelines and best practices from the framework we're using. And especially that's going to be Angular and that's going to be TypeScript best practices. One of the good things with Angular is that it's very opinionated, where it's very easy for a consultant like me to go in on a project and it's almost almost gonna look this almost gonna look the same every time, at least mostly with the conventions and such. It's gonna make it very easy. So it, it's very important that if you don't have a good reason for it, you just keep following the, these guidelines and you only extend upon them instead of trying to modify them and create your own, own rules because it's going to be way easier to get new Angular developers on the team if you already are following these guidelines. And, and then when new people are starting uh, with Angular development, I also invite them to go and read the, the style guide of Angular and read the NGIX guidelines and TypeScript uh, do's and don'ts and such because that's the guidelines we are building upon uh, on almost every project. And then there's going to be something on top of that, of course, that's going to be project specific, but mostly I would say over 80% is just coming from these official guidelines. You should just learn. And when you learn it once, you can just bounce on in between Angular projects and it's almost going to look the same every time. Yeah, this is something that I've seen in a lot of other systems too. I mean, you know, we, we do shows on React and Vue. We do shows on Ruby. You know, JavaScript Jabber, we wind up talking about Express and things like that. And some of them are more opinionated than Angular and some of them are less opinionated than Angular. But the community tends to settle into a way of doing things. And once that happens, if you deviate from it, then people have to have to stop and look and what's different and why. And then, and then they have to figure that out and then they have to get used to your way of doing things instead of coming in and not having that interrupt their flow and just be able to figure out what's going on because it's done the same way as they expect. Yeah. Also, personally, I hate 
discussing stuff like small nitpicks in, in pull request. And so it's, it's way easier when you can just point, uh, look at the Angular style guide and just objectively just refer to that and, and not even make a personal discussion out of it. It's way easier just having these, these documents you can just refer to. Yeah, that that's totally true. And I, I join you both and especially Charles, like when he says the idea of like staying mainstream and that's the thing I keep saying to teams, like stay mainstream. If you have like the same stack as most people, like you're using the same tools, then you will benefit from the community, you will benefit from some magic schematics that will happen, stuff like this. So that's also another point, which is not totally related to the guidelines, but which comes with it. Like if you say with the community on the mainstream stuff, it's going to work like Tron. Even though, even though still it's not that easy because like, for example, there are still these questions that can come up all the time. Like when you just use an Angular CLI or if you're using the monorepo with an X and it's then set up with Jest and Cypress and there's a trade-off there between like different testing frameworks, for example. That's where you, where you get out from the mainstream approach but which is not that, no, it's still mainstream using like NX with Jest. But I don't know what do you think about that. Yeah, it's it's a little less mainstream because it's not coming out of the box as as Jasmine and Karma, for example. But yeah, it's a trade-off. If you know what you're doing, go for it. But if you don't know what you're doing, then go really mainstream because the community is going to back you up. It's going to be so easy, much easier to find help on Stack Overflow and find help from other developers. So if you know what you're doing, then uh, then you can you can be less you can be more hipster. Yeah, well, and I also have found that sometimes you run into cases where it's like this just isn't working right. Yeah, you know, this isn't doing what I need it to do, even though it's kind of the the best practice. But then you can actually have the conversation about when to deviate. And especially there's there's one thing also concerning the stack and the frameworks and the tooling, which is for me is very important is the people you have truly really depends on the team. When I coach teams, like different teams I coach end up with different stacks because it's, I prefer them to use like the stack they master, even though it's not like the right abstraction, even though it's not like the most performance one, but at least they master it for now. And then we can migrate later. It's very important like to have like people like mastering the technology they use. Yeah, definitely. Vue.js is no longer the new kid on the block. It's a well-established framework that allows you to build web applications similar to React and Angular. We have a podcast featuring several people from the Vue community, including Chris Fritz, who's on the Vue core team, Ben Hong, who works for GitLab, and several other people that contribute on a regular basis to talk to us about Vue and all of the things going on in the Vue community and all of the things you can do with it. You can check it out at viewsonvue.com. That's views, V-I-E-W-S, on viewvue.com. Let's jump to the next one, which is about remember to typing everything in the Angular app. In Angular, we use TypeScript. And the good thing with that is that it's the cheapest way to get static error checking. Whenever you try to go faster by omitting types, you are begging for runtime problems later. Because, for example, if you, if you say, ah, I'm not going to type up that DTO response I get from the backend, because I remember now I just looked at Swagger. But then later, someone's going to find there's some typo in it and he's going to change something and it's going to all blow up or something. 
it's going to be very fragile and it makes no sense not to do it because it is the cheapest way to have some automatic error checking response in in place when you check in code. So what I like to do is that I set up the TSLint rule, no any. So first of all, you cannot use any and it's going to scream at you if you try to do it. <laughs> then also set up the TypeScript strict compiler option to enforce being explicit about null values also, just to max out the, the type checking you're going to get because you're going to be, you're going to get these runtime errors as we've seen from traditional JavaScript development if you're not uh, utilizing TypeScript. So that's stuff like always create DTOs from backend response, type it all out and every response uh, you get, especially if you get it from other boundaries. That's that's why you really want to to be sure about the types. But yeah, you, you want to type everything out. There's, there's, no, there's no real exception here, except sometime in tests when you have a lot of test data you want to set up and you, you don't want to type it all out. You can actually use the partial keyword from TypeScript and you only need to type out some of it if you only need some properties for the tests to be valid instead of maybe creating some huge uh, objects. If that is not working, then sometimes in test, it might be all right to then cast to any. But uh, test would be the only exception in your actual source code. Uh, you want that to be 100% typed. By the way, like, what do you think about typing everything, but not everywhere? What I mean by that is, like, sometimes I see like, some projects where like, everything is typed, and there are some types which are like superfluous, which means like sometimes you got we get to take the benefit from the typing inference. So mm. tools like TSLint sometimes point out on like basic stuff, but sometimes like I don't know when when you use like destructuring and stuff like this, type retyping is not required because typing inference is very powerful and. Mm. I think this is also something where it takes time that it takes time to learn, like mm-hmm. typing in the right place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely. If you'd already in, inherited, you can already yeah, you don't need to explicit places where it's it's already interpreted. So yeah, but it's still gonna be typed regardless if you if you specify that these places. Exactly. Typing at the right place is tricky. Yeah. So yeah. one thing that I, I'm running into, and I'm gonna make this argument, and then of course. I started making it in my head and it sounded like the argument that I uh, wind up hearing people make about testing, right? And it's like, well, it's so much extra work. You don't always know what you want when you're in the middle of it. And so, you know, and, and you know, so Eunice made this point (laughs) earlier too, where it was like, maybe I should just wait and see, right? So I don't know. I mean, it seems like a bunch of extra work and you're pointing out that it's going to give you some ROI, but it's ROI that's hard to measure. Yeah, I mean... You're you're talking about the payoff with the tools and the reliability during runtime, but is it really going to save you that much time if you do it up front? I think it will both save you time in development speed. As when you develop, you can get better intelligence, and you uh-huh. don't need to go and double check Swagger. And there's less room for human errors because it's it's typed out already. That's the thing you you're gonna get these uh, automatic regressions, and it's yeah. fairly easy to create the types. So uh, so. Compared to the, so it's not a ton of extra work. That's what it's you're not saying. a ton of. Yeah, that's what it's I'm some, saying. Some, but not a lot. It's some, but not a lot. Yeah. By the way, one of my favorite use cases for typing is when you you type the return type of your function that returns an observable, 
but you don't do this for people who are using the function. You're doing it for you while you're implementing the function because you're going through like a bunch of operators and mm. you want to make sure you're returning the right type. And usually mm. when you're not returning the right type, when you have like a compile error that you can see on your ID, is that you're missing some operator there. Like, I don't know, like you forgot to buffer because you were waiting for an array or something. And so sometimes typing, so that's where I think like people should find like the right way like of typing, like when it's really useful for you, the developer. And there, there's a really big ROI. Yeah, definitely. Let's jump to the next one which is about high return of investment testing, which is very um, related, but it's, the, it's on the higher parts of the testing pyramid, so to say. So what that is about is that not all tests are equal. And when you create tests, you are actually creating an investment decision for spending a little more time right now to writing these tests for then having less box and faster confident and faster regression checking and such later on. But not everything is, is equally critical in an Angular app. So there are certain areas I like to focus on and I have this magical formula I like to propose for teams how to find that, that line of what should be tested, what should not be tested, at least what is import, what is the most important to test. So if you don't run out of time, you at least did the most important stuff to test because going for 100% code coverage on a big banking app is not really realistic because there are deadlines, there are stuff to go in and, and it's not equally going to return an equal yield on, on getting each part uh, tested. Sometimes it, it might be very close to the UI and might be, be hard to test automatically and such. So how I like to focus on the test, at least to make sure to test these areas. And of course, you can test more than this. This is just the places where there are 100% test coverage and no excuses. So these are, if you use NGIX effects, it should be services that contain business logic, such as NGIX effects services, and could be functions that contain business logic. And these are like to unit test with 100% code coverage. And that's basically, there's no excuse there to why not to get every uh, branch covered there? Because it's it's fairly just TypeScript code, really. And there's no no crazy DOM elements and stuff, but not too much stuff that needs to be marked out um, normally. And then there are the pure function, which are helpers, pipes, and also if you use NGIX, selectors, which is a good place to, to put some business study because of the memorization you will get. And that's also 100% code coverage. And then they have a smart components, which I like to integration test for happy paths, where I'm actually, I'm still marking out the backend, of course, but I'm actually rendering the real uh, presentation components and, and I'm, I'm creating some tests for at least, to make sure the, at least making sure the use cases are working. And from there, you can add more tests, but that's when I develop 